Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to Chasing Poker Greatness. As always, this is your host, the founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com, Brad Wilson. And today, I would like to welcome you to a brand new series on Chasing Poker Greatness called Aspirants. They are conversations with folks who aspire to achieve long-term success on the green felt. These episodes are going to be a little different than what you're used to hearing on Chasing Poker Greatness, And if they aren't your cup of tea, they will be labeled as quote-unquote aspirant in the show title, so you can just skip them when they show up in your feed. If you listen to today's show and think to yourself, oh man, I'm an aspirant, I need this, check out enhanceyouredge.com slash guest and sign up. The fee is $100, and after our conversation, you're added to an exclusive Aspirants-only Slack group with other folks just like you who are chasing their own versions of poker greatness. The Slack group is also highly important so that I can check in and follow up on the Aspirants and give them feedback whenever they hit snags. Today's Aspirant is Doc, and she's going to share her personal story of how she fell into the world of cards and what it would mean for her to find success. So without any further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Doc, welcome to this Aspirant episode. How are you doing? Doing great, thank you. I'm excited. Good. I'm excited too. The first thing to jump into, let's talk about your story. Where are you coming from? Who are you? that wants to play poker, uh, either professionally, semi-professionally, however it is. Where are you coming from? Okay, this might be long. Um, <laughs> even, though it's, even though it's short, uh, I've only been playing poker for about two and a half years now, and that counts my very first hand of poker, which was played on Zynga about two and a half years ago. And the reason I got into poker was... Not uh, just into poker, like just who you are as a human being. Well, I'm, I'm backing up there to tell that part of the story because uh, leading up to my discovery of poker, I had just had the worst three years of my life. It was basically like a country song. I'm going to say it started when there was like a horrible car accident I was in and busted up my knees. And then after that, uh, that's when I got cancer and that really sucked. I had stage three C breast cancer and I had double mastectomies, don't have those anymore. I had uh, five months of chemo and 36 treatments of radiation. And How how old are you? I am 39. I just turned 39. I was 34 when I had cancer, when I discovered my cancer. Yeah. What what was it like going through the car accident and then finding out you had cancer at such a young age? Can you tell me about that? Sure. Uh, Well, I'm going to say I had a third misfortune, which really broke me. So we'll get to that in a moment. But I was actually really super high spirits through my car accident and the uh, cancer. When I got in the wreck and I couldn't walk afterwards, I was just really glad that my kids were okay. And I started walking just a half a kilometer a day, really slow on the treadmill, just hobbling 
And then I decided to go out and walk outside, even though I had like all kinds of crazy PTSD, like even just seeing headlights would freak me out. And I'd just start hobbling. And I was like, today, I'm going to go further. Today, I'm going to go further. I'm not going to let this disable me. And so uh, pretty soon, I didn't have to walk with a cane anymore. And uh, then I was able to, you know, run 5Ks again and stuff like that. So uh, I recovered really well from that. And I was really happy. And then cancer came along, which was a huge surprise. I'll, I guess I'll tell that story because it's, it's really weird I, I, how it was discovered. I noticed that there was a big lymph node under my left arm, you know, like when you get sick. And I remember noticing it around May because my, I was visiting my mother and my mother has had a kidney transplant. So I can't be around her if I'm sick with anything, right? So I was like, ooh, maybe I'm coming down with something. I shouldn't go visit her. But then, I, you know, a week or two went by and I was still fine. So I was like, okay, it's fine. I'll visit her. Meanwhile, I was having some other symptoms. I was losing weight like crazy. And I, was go I went to the doctor about it. And she was like, maybe you just eat too much kale, you know? <laughs> and I was like, okay. So, um, so I was losing weight like crazy. It's a very professional opinion. You eat too much kale. <laughs> I know. And... So, uh, and they did do, they did do some imaging of my lower body, but they, you know, they didn't check the breasts or anything. So, um, anyway, then September came around and my youngest child went off to preschool. So suddenly I had this time during the day that I didn't have before. So I thought, Hey, I'm going to check that weird and large thing out that was happening in May because it's still there. What's up with that? And so I went into my doctor, who's actually a really good friend, still my Facebook friend. And I was like, hey, look at this. I got this big lymph node. And her eyes got really wide. And I was like, what's up? And she said, well, we're going to stick a needle in that right away because it's either an infection or it's cancer. And I remember thinking, oh, great, an infection. I'm going to have to pick up the kids and we're going to have to go all the way to the pharmacy on the other side of town. They're going to be hungry and I got to get dinner on the table. What a hassle. So she said, I'm going to get my favorite pathologist, comes in the room with the needle, sticks it in there, swishes around, uncomfortable, goes right outside in the hallway to look at it through a, a microscope, which is really cool. And I'm sitting in there, and then my doctor comes in and closes the door behind her and says, okay, yeah, it's cancer. And I was like, what? Like, like lymphoma? Because it's in my lymph node? And the pathologist breezes in, and she says, nope, it looks epithelial, possibly breast. And immediately they're both groping me, trying to find the lump on my breast. Nobody could find it, by the way. Uh, it was, it's just like my tissue is too dense and fibrous, which is a problem for women, especially when they're young, uh, for trying to diagnose these things. So anyway, I'm laying there going, oh, what? Okay, can I see it? The pathologist says, yes. So I go out in the hallway, I look in the microscope, and she says, look at them dividing. Look at those giant nuclei. They're not supposed to have giant nuclei like that. They're sick. And I could see them splitting right in front of my eyes. And I was like, okay, yeah, that sucks. My doctor says, I'll be right back. I'm going to go talk to some people. And she runs out of the room. And then I'm alone in the room. And I notice my left knee is shaking. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I noticed my right knee is shaking. And I, then I started crying. Uh-oh, my kids, my kids. And I started crying and I'm texting my now ex-husband. I said, I have cancer, pick up kids. <laughs> and then uh, the doctor comes in and says, 10 a.m. tomorrow, you're going to meet some of your new treatment team. You're going to have chemotherapy, radiation, the whole works, and a lot of imaging coming up. So right now, you know, go home and hug your kids. And so since my ex couldn't pick them up, I drove to school and I picked them up. 
And they, I looked really sad and they said, mom, what's wrong? And I said, uh, I think I have a really big stick because, <laughs> you know, they were both in preschool. And, uh, and then we went home. And since it was my daughter's birthday that week, I was like, let's open presents and order pizza. So that's what we did. Anyway, it was a really tough time going through the treatment for sure. Uh, it was, I call it like my long, dark winter of the soul because my treatment lasted, you know, I started chemo on October 8th, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I was super aware. And then um, did chemo for a long time, all the way until uh, almost March. And then in March, I had my mastectomies and then immediately started radiation. And by this time, at the end of May, I had, um, I had already been declared no evidence of disease, which is awesome. And they took out my ovaries because I had estrogen receptor positive cancer, and they thought that that might encourage future growth. And going back to your horrible winter, um, what were you thinking? What were you, what are the emotions you were feeling at that time? I think that, um, and like I said, I was actually pretty cheery through the accident and the cancer. I was trying to be sort of like poster child for let's fight this thing. Like I even had like a party where I said farewell to my boobs and I burned all my bras and all my friends made like cupcakes that looked like boobs and stuff like that it was hilarious. And so I was mostly in, in good spirits. I remember just thinking a lot about my family and thinking, you know, I'm getting through this for my family. And I also remember obsessively thinking about camping you know, because I was like in my basement, basically laying down all the time, just a wraith of skinniness. I had just horrible bone pain from this drug that I had to inject myself with every day um, in order to help speed up my, my blood cell growth in the bone marrow. And it was so painful. And I remember just obsessively thinking about camping and being like, yes, in the spring, I will go camping, camping. And so I guess that's where my brain was. So how, how did this disrupt your professional life in the meantime, going through all this? Because it seems hard to do so much. Yeah, I, um, it was actually really a relief to give up a lot of stuff afterwards. Um, so I'm an author, so I've written over a dozen published books. So I, in, at the time, I had one book in the works with one publisher and I had an anthology in the works with another publisher, which I was editing. And anthologies are actually a pain in the butt. It was my second anthology that I was editing. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this one up. I'm going to say, it's a great excuse. I have cancer. Sorry, can't do. And I felt just this wave of relief that I was no longer hurting cats uh, trying to get that anthology together. I did keep the book that I also had under contract with my main publisher because I was kind of in like the later stages, like revision stages. And I thought I can do this. And I also continued with my uh, doctoral degree program because I was working on my PhD at the time. And uh, I was right in the middle of my dissertation. And I remember all my advisors were like, no, you should take a break. And I was like, no, like, no, I'm not taking a break. I'm not giving this up. For some reason, I couldn't give that one up. And so I did finish my dissertation during my treatment and I couldn't attend my graduation because I was in treatment. So <laughs> instead I got the cap and gown and like posed in my yard and stuff for photos. So you're a fighter. These obstacles that have been in your path, you, you've fought through them. Um, right. Met them head on 
and overcome, right? Right. Except the third one. The third What's one the third was one? the third one was the divorce, and that one really broke me. Divorces are a hundred percent worse than cancer, <laughs> and this one was really super heartbreaking. Really, just massively tore out my heart and shredded it to pieces. And I really struggled through that one. I was no longer the poster child of awesomeness. I was, you know, really struggling in every sense of the word. And so that's kind of the headspace I was in um, when I decided to start studying poker. So you, you came into poker right after your divorce? Is that yep. the timeline? Exactly. In fact, right when my divorce was finalized was about the time when I was like, okay, I'm going to pick up a smart person game. It's either going to be chess or poker and poker involves other humans and I might make friendships in the meantime. So I'm going to do that. So I downloaded Zynga poker and I started playing and I started reading too. And the first book I read was, um, that one by Phil Helmuth, uh, play poker like like the pros with like the eagle and like stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, it's funny that I, and I got onto Reddit, r slash poker. I was like, I'm going to learn this thing to death. And uh, even though I feel like those were the worst resources to get started on, like <laughs> the nut low, uh, I did manage to touch the heart of poker, I think, which is um, just poker, it's a, it's stoic philosophy in action. You know, you learn to be at peace with life's variance. You learn there's just another hand around the corner and just keep going. And I think that that combined with my defeated headspace really brought me back. It brought me back from that. I felt like at the time I felt like my inner light had been snuffed out, you know, it was gone. <laughs> and I realized through poker that it wasn't gone. You know, it was just hidden. What does it mean to you to find success at this game over the long term? I think, um, I think it means a lot to me because it's like, I, I swear, just the philosophy of it, it's almost religious in nature. I feel like the more that I get closer to understanding, especially the math behind it, uh, the more I get closer to understanding the universe and, and my place in it, really. I, I hate to make this sound like really woo woo but I am pretty woo woo if you look at my books so you know <laughs> I don't think a publisher would be down with a book about poker as religion but <laughs> there are definitely takeaways in how we navigate our way through life that can be taken from poker for instance you make a decision with all the information that you have that feels like the best decision and sometimes that's not enough sometimes the result is bad and that's okay. All we can do is navigate in the best way that we can with the information that we have. And yeah, poker, there are a lot of philosophical and life lessons that can come from learning this game and dealing with the variance and all of these things. So I also think that uh, as a lifelong perfectionist, it also helps me uh, with my own um, my own understanding of self because I feel like I'm often hard on myself when I do make mistakes in life because, you know, people say, Oh, well, you're making the best decision you could with the information you were given at the time. And I'd always come back on myself and say, no, I wasn't trying my very best. You know, I wasn't trying my hardest. I could have tried harder. And 
with the experience of poker and just the inability to not make mistakes, um, I'm realizing more that trying your best is more of an iterative process, right? It's something that- How does it feel holding that responsibility on your shoulders to always make the right decision, even in retrospect, looking at a bad outcome? It, it was very difficult. I think that um, uh, one of my personal flaws is that I take on too much responsibility. And it's kind of a control freak thing. That's another aspect of poker that really is healing for me as a control freak is there's so much that's on my control and so much that I can focus on that is in my control. And that really helps too. For sure. You have to lean in to the uncertainty and let go of control if you ever want to have success playing cards because so much of it is out of your control. And when you're dealing with minimal information in a lot of cases, you just don't know. You don't have the clues that guide you in the right direction all the time. So just saying like, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe I can figure it out given enough time. Or if I analyze how I'm getting my inputs and analyzing the data. However, right now I don't know. And that's okay. Because nobody else knows either. Nobody else has all the answers, right? Watch Phil Galfond in the Galfond Challenge and on Twitch. Just listen to how many times he says, I don't know. I don't know. I could do this. I don't know. Maybe I'll do this. I don't know. It's part of it. You can't get away from that. When, when you're certain as a poker player and when you're in this space with certainty, I'm going to say you're full of shit because nobody can be certain. If somebody has all the answers or is telling you they have all the answers, don't buy it. Don't buy what they're selling because nobody has these answers, right? So for you, poker has given you a renewed sense of purpose, right? After going through the third, the third bad thing, your, your divorce. So being good at poker, making your income from poker, what is the goal? What is your end goal? I would like in 10 years to be making my income from poker. I'm realistic. I don't think it's something that's going to happen right away, but I would like in 10 years to be making an income from poker that's significant. How do you plan on going about making that happen? Working hard for 10 years. <laughs> Too abstract. We need more tangibleness, tangibility. Um, well, right now I'm kind of... Um, vacillating between uh, kind of the study play ratios you know I started off with very much like 80 20 study play ratio and then um, been kind of trying to work more towards like a 50 50 study play ratio because I think I need a lot more experience essentially and um, I think just continuing to build resources around me is really important because I've met some really incredible life-changing people like yourself. And I feel like there's a lot more out there and that um, together we can sort of help each other, you know. When you think about improving, what allows you to improve the most? Is it studying or is it playing? Do you have a good way to gauge that? I don't have a good way to gauge that. I am basing that off of uh, a couple of books uh, that have advised this uh, to me. And um, I feel like I sometimes have a subjective sense, you know, like I just went through the from the ground up course from run at once, which was pretty awesome. 
And uh, I feel like I'm a little bit too weighted towards study now since it was very theoretical. And I feel like I'm going to have to go through each section again and kind of play mindfully towards those lessons. Why do you gravitate more towards the study than the playing? Because I do love study. I'm kind of addicted to it. I mean, that's why I got a doctoral degree. It said right on the papers, terminal degree, you know, do not study more. Please don't. And I was like, that that's what I need. I need that. So, uh, <laughs> so I do love the studying aspect. It's easy for me. And uh, I've trained a lot in studying. And so that's something that's more familiar and comfortable. I love playing too. Definitely love playing. But I don't want to fall into any traps there either of playing too much. I think I, I kind of vacillated too far on the other end. And um, I was worried I picked up a lot of bad habits, but I'm not sure, right? Because it's one of those things where it's like I hit a downswing. Luckily, I'm, I'm out of it now. But I hit a downswing and I was like, is this variance? Or is this me, you know, just playing so long that I'm reinforcing some bad habits and I have no idea what I'm doing? <laughs> It's not the greatest of questions to ask yourself on your poker journey because you're not going to get a reliable answer or an answer that you can trust. So the better question is, how do I improve daily? How am I going about improvement on a daily basis from session to session? The only way to gauge that is by getting in there, putting in volume and playing. For sure. Right now, what my routine is basically is um, first thing in the morning, I review my notes from a month ago, a week ago, and a day ago. And then um, after that, when I'm getting towards where I'm going to be playing, I reviewed hand histories. And How are you using these notes? Um, well, what I do is when I first look through them uh, 24 hours later, I try to add some clarifying details because some things are lost and you look back at it in the week and you're like, what did I even mean here? And then in a week I underline the important things. And then in a month I highlight the distillations of those. I also use my notes to set goals, which I, uh, I actually put on my like Twitch channel. There's like this weird quests feature. And so my quests are basically my goals which are usually a week week goal, but sometimes it's like bi-weekly or I'll change it because I was like, this goal was dumb. I need a different one. So uh, I use that to kind of guide my, my play sessions. And do you measure your progression based on your notes and note-taking and how you think about the game almost in a journal, journal type way? No, I don't think I use the notes to measure my progression, except for superficially, you know, like I just finished volume two and I'm working on volume three. And so sometimes I'll look at the beginning of volume one and I'll be like, ha look at me, <laughs> I'm better. But uh, other than that, I don't really use it to assess where I'm going. I would like to use reviewing hand histories as a better assessment tool for how I'm doing, but I feel like I'm bad at that and I would like to learn more. Do you have fear about being able to make it in this game? I think I wouldn't call it. Well, yeah, I'd say it's, I do have some fear. I, I, because I do love poker. And I think that if I, if I follow my darkest thought trains, I worry that I'll have to stop playing because I'll like, you know, 
just become somebody who goes broke every time. Like there's so many of those and you know, is that your big, is that your biggest fear as related to poker? Yeah. I'm going to say my biggest fear is that I'll have to stop playing poker because I just suck so bad. And that would really suck. (laughs) So understanding your biggest fear, look at, let's look at our actions of over preparing Mm -hmm. and not playing enough. Right. If we look at, the psychology behind that, what we're seeing is when you're not putting in volume, the rationale is that you are afraid yeah. you will go broke or that you will have to stop playing, right? Yeah. And this is a deterrent towards being the best poker player that you're capable of. Okay. You're made in the arena. You learn what you don't know in the arena when the situation comes up. So I have never met any professional poker player that studies 80% of the time and plays only 20% of the time. Well, that was at the very beginning. I definitely don't have that ratio now. More like 50. It can become even 50-50. It can become a crutch studying Mm -hmm. too often and not getting in there. Because Mm -hmm. like you said, it's an iterative process, right? It's improving yourself on a daily basis. You iterate based on the decisions you're making and then based on your own study. And the only way to iterate is to get sample and to approach it in that way. So just be careful about what you're doing and really understand like when it comes to a stumbling block, why is this here? Why is this fear here? And Mm -hmm. what can I do to push through it? Yeah. So what stakes do you play? What does your bankroll look like? How exactly long have you been immersed in this game? So I'd say um, maybe a year and a half of, of pretty serious immersion. Um, and, uh, but I've been playing very low stakes. So in the cash games, I've been playing primarily on run at once, which is four NL, which is uh, four euros, that is. And uh, I've only got, I'm like half rolled there. I'm under rolled trying to. uh, What does that mean to you, under rolled? I have 200 euros in there and I should have 400. Why? Um, Because I'm broke. (laughs) So I'm going, to cha- I'm going to challenge you on this. Okay. Can you save money for a bankroll? Can you put money aside to create a bankroll? What is stopping you from that? Um, I think that um, I do have some cash on hand that I was saving for a live bankroll that I could probably cannibalize to put on my cash games bankroll. I think what's stopping me is uh, I definitely – have have spread myself too thin with my uh, foci, I think. Because I want to be bankrolled for like three different kinds of poker playing. Yes, which, you know, you, you, you should be focusing on one, one at a time, for mm-hmm. sure. And I don't buy like, I never buy it when people tell me that they only have a very small bankroll. Because yeah. if you're going to buy your kids something for Christmas... Are you, is that going to be an excuse? Are you going to say, well, I just don't have it. Sorry, no Christmas for you. Or are you going to bear down and put the money away? Because it's, it matters. It's a priority, right? True. We, 
I don't, I don't spend a lot of money on myself in general, for sure. I don't think I myself a gift that was that much, you know, so. If you are going, looking to approach poker more professionally, you have to approach it in a professional way. Money is our tool. It's what keeps us in the game. It's what makes us money. The more we risk, the more we are able to make, generally speaking. And so I think it seems like with you, you feel like you bust this $200, you're out of action forever. And that, that can't be the case. Like it just, it just can't be. Right? right. So if you want to be great in this game, you have to dedicate yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You've got to bleed. Right. Mm-hmm. And right now, you know, you're playing $2 spins, right? Yeah, I am. I'm properly ruled for those. Um, see, what's that mean? Properly ruled. What does that mean to you? For me, it means a hundred buy-ins for spins, for sure. Yeah. yeah, but what, like, in a general sense, like, what is it doing for you to feel properly rolled for the game that you're playing? It definitely uh, reduces a lot of my anxieties about my world's worst fear because then I can just turn off that little thing that says my balance and just look at it once a month, and that's great right if i'm underrolled i can't just like turn off my balance for a month and check into it i gotta make sure i'm not going broke (laughs) so let's look at this first this this fear of being broke and being out of poker is it a real fear i think it no, no, I don't think it's it's a real fear. I think it's more connected with, you know, feeling like I'd have to explain myself to somebody or something. I, I've had, I think I'm, it's definitely connected with, um, I have financial, mental game issues uh, my whole life, just probably based on my family of origin and then kind of crystallized in my previous marriage. Uh, so, I've had a lot of difficulty. I haven't, this is the first time in my life I've had a lot of control over my money. uh, And I'm not a fool with money. I was raised to know a whole lot about, you know, saving and investing. I'm definitely tend towards the thrifty, savvy type. Um, But I definitely don't want to screw this up with my newfound freedom and do things that are unreasonable. What's reasonable? What can you put away every month? To, towards a poker bankroll that ensures you're still in action and that you can still provide for your family in a way that makes you feel happy and good? I don't know. I don't know what's reasonable because I think that there's a lot of sort of socioeconomic underlying issues here of um, what what expenditures are, are um, you know, responsible. And uh, poker is definitely just a game just for fun. It would be... Is it just uh, a game to you, though? Because it didn't seem like a game when you were telling your story. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, it feels uh, really important to me, but... Uh, There's no but. It just is. Mm-hmm. If it's important to you, then it's important to you. Mm-hmm. If you, you can't minimize what's important to you. Because then you're not being true to yourself. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've come to Poker Power Hour many times. You and I have had many, many discussions. I'm always impressed with your dedication and resolve as it relates to this game. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's dive into why, you know, you said those words, that it's just a game. Yeah. Why'd you phrase it that way? I phrased it that way because uh, it would fall into my entertainment budget. <laughs> and my enta- entertainment budget right now is extremely small. So I would have to, I would have to enlarge my entertainment budget. So do you want to be professional or do you want it to be entertainment? I want to be professional, but I've got time. <laughs> you do have, well, maybe. We, we may have time. I, again, we really don't know. But if you want to be a pro, you have to come at it like a pro. And as little as I knew as a 20-year-old human, as dumb as I was about everything in life, I did realize in poker, our tool is money. Mm-hmm. And I saved up like $3,000 as like a 19-year-old kid for my first, very first poker bankroll. And it's necessary to, if you're going to take this seriously, you're not going to see a movie. You're, in, you're investing into yourself and you're making investments on a daily basis when you play cards. So like, you know, you either take it seriously and you pursue your dream in earnest or you treat it as entertainment and you look at it that way and you have, you're happy and you accept it. So like, which way are you going when it comes to poker? Pursue in earnest or look at it as entertainment? I think that it, it also rolls into a big sort of socio socioeconomic issue for women and for disabled people. I am on disability and I do get child support. These are my main sources of income. And I would feel bad spending that on poker. So basically, Why? my poker income is... Why would you, know, you feel bad? Because I think that... I mean, I think I've, I've experienced a lot in my life um, of basically uh, the idea that people people in our culture disagree with people who are underrolled for life doing self-care things, right? So a rich white person might spend a day at the spa and spend $300 and that's self-care, right? But if a person on welfare goes out for ice cream and spends $5, they're like, what the hell is she doing going out to ice cream, right? She should be spending that on shoes to go to work or whatever. Why does it matter to you what the outside people think of how you spend your money? Uh, because I have had a weird relationship with money my whole life with regards to that. And I think I still don't understand what's allowed for a adult human to do. I mean, even just, let me give, let me tell you a little other part of my story. That's actually really funny and related to poker. When I first was starting to get into poker and play Zynga poker, I asked my boyfriend, I said, okay, it's my New Year's resolution this year to spend more time relaxing. I don't relax at all. I just don't, right? And so I said to him, how often does a normal person 
relax and for how long? And he was like, normal humans relax for hours every day. And I was like, hours every day? I can't do that. Like, that's completely impossible. And uh, so actually poker helped me with that because playing poker for me is relaxing. And so, you know, now I can relax for hours each day. So I kept my New Year's resolution to myself. I think it would be definitely a bigger resolution to tackle my uh, issues with money and um, trying to figure out what's appropriate, how much normal people spend on their entertainment <laughs> if they're in a situation. Would you feel relaxed if you were playing for more money and bigger stakes? Not at first, but I would definitely. How do you know, right? Like, right. never my, experienced it. Exactly. I would never know. But for now, what I've experienced is, you know, if I jump in stakes, I feel like nervous at first and then, you know, it becomes relaxing. Even when I am nervous, there's a certain part of me that's compartmentalized that is relaxed. I don't know if that explains much, but it's like there's this part of me that's activated into thinking logically about the problem. And that's very calming and peaceful. It's interesting. I've never heard poker termed as a relaxing thing to do. <laughs> Typically high stress, high energy, adrenaline. It's a battle. Um, it's a battle every session, right? So is running a marathon. I've run sure. a marathon and it's the same. Nobody would say it's relaxing though. They're relaxing by running a marathon. <laughs> I don't know. I find running uh, is peaceful in the same way. Running is my meditation. It's relaxing. When I'm angry, I go for a run. And the same thing, if I have a really bad day and I'm just super ticked off, I'm just like, that's it. I'm playing poker and I sit down. And I play my game, and by the end of those two hours, I'm feeling so much better. And I'm like, that day didn't suck at all. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. So we have two competing realities, right? We have one where you have potential to fully invest yourself and do very well at this game, to supplement your income, provide for your family. Mm -hmm. We have another one where you don't, where you're risk averse, you study, but you're not able to really put it together um, right. because you, you're, the risk is just too high for you. Your risk tolerance is just so, so, so low, right? Mm -hmm. In which way is your family and you served better? Which path? I guess I don't know the answer to that one because I cannot predict success. That's true. You can't but you can work towards it. Right. And, and I guess therein, like that's a mental issue right there. Right. You can't predict success. So if you right. fully invest yourself in poker, the fear is you're not good enough, you're right. not good I, enough to make it. I think the issue there is that there's just so much, so many numbers there to support the idea that I will not succeed. Right. Because there's so many poker players who do not. And those who do succeed to a level that at which I would like, are very, very rare indeed. And so I feel like uh, what I've been doing is trying to temper my enthusiasm with reality, you know, the, the very huge reality that I may never number among those who succeed to the degree that I imagine. If this is how you approach poker, how do you think that affects your chances of success over the long term? 
I, I don't think that one has to have a completely untempered reality in order to succeed. I think it's okay to say, well, I might fail, but I'm going to keep trying until I either do or don't. <laughs> it's true that you might fail and you might not. And lots of people in poker do fail. It's very known, only a small percentage of people succeed. However, having the belief that you will succeed, that you are the outlier, you are part of the 3% that are going to be successful at this game is necessary. Really? Without, without it, where's your self-belief? How are you going to invest in yourself if you don't think you're going to be one of those people? I don't know. I disagree with that because I think that you, it's the same reason you approach any of these unknowns. You know, you take the information and the, uh, the, the tools you have available at the moment. Logically, you're right. Emotionally, I don't think you're so right. Because when you have the doubt, that doubt, that fear is going to cause you to do things that are counter to your potential success, such as investing in yourself, such as looking at poker as a serious endeavor and not entertainment. Mm -hmm. because when you think there's a high likelihood of failing, you cannot invest yourself fully. You cannot commit. You can't invest money in yourself. You have to look at poker as entertainment, right? Right. I think that I've uh, just kind of to go back to my past here. I think I picked this kind of way of approaching things up, you know, when I was going through cancer treatment, because I had a, I had a pretty good chance of survival. There was a just a 25% chance that I would die before age 36. And I was like, okay, that's pretty good odds. But I want to stay realistic and say, you know, I might not make it and kind of make plans accordingly, you know, make sure my advanced directives and all that were all in order. And kind of, but I did think about that every day. I didn't just try and put it out of my mind and say, no way, I'm going to, I'm going to win this no matter what. And so I think that that kind of philosophy doesn't necessarily hold me back, but um, you've definitely pointed out a place in which it slows my progression for certain. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just tough. I mean, most people don't, most people aren't going to succeed, right? Like, you know, you spoke about running a marathon. Mm -hmm. So what if somebody showed up and to run the marathon and they're like, I don't know, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can do this. I can't even run a half a mile. Two months later, six months later, what are, what are the odds on bet that that person is going to do it, is going to commit? They're going to follow through. They're going to invest themselves. They're going to show up every day. I don't know. You just described my, my approach to running a marathon. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> I couldn't even run for 30 seconds straight, and I was just like, I'm going to follow this training plan. My body's just a machine, right? <laughs> yeah, but you follow the plan, right? Like hey, I follow the plan. I think that that's the difference here is that I'm supposed to make my own plan and I'm bad at that. <laughs> there is no real plan as it comes to poker and almost everything comes down to mental game issues and how you think and how you approach things and your tolerance of risk. So rightfully you have a low tolerance for risk because you have a family to take care of and support and you have to provide for them. And that is priority number one. However, it's not self-indulgent or selfish to put money aside every month for a poker bankroll. Yeah. If the end goal is to make money, then it's not selfish to invest in yourself.
I think you're right. I think that in the beginning, when I was first playing, I set myself a budget of $13 a month. <laughs> and I was like, I can do this. That was just the, the amount that I decided would be okay for this entertainment. And so it's perfectly reasonable to phase that back in. I just stopped doing it because obviously I stopped losing. And so that was good. But you're right. I could definitely still be investing that money towards a bankroll. No problem. Yeah, I always have um... – always want to challenge bankroll beliefs, especially when it comes to the micro stakes and playing very small stakes, because the bigger your bankroll is, the more conservative you ought to be. And the smaller your bankroll is, the more aggressive you should be because you can replace a small bankroll, yeah. right? You can replace $200. This is not some, this is not irreplaceable right. in this world. So with that said, I would certainly start pushing myself to get out of my comfort zone and understand what's possible. Like, what, what is your goal? If you, if you had to say a concrete goal as far as an hourly rate that you would be happy with yeah. in whatever format you choose to invest yourself in, find out what that hourly rate is. What does that look like? What kind of commitment does that mean I need to make on a daily basis and then commit and show up and believe that you can do it? Good point. I think right now, uh, like I said, in my spin and go games, I, I've got a goal now of reaching, you know, the hundred dollar buy-in. And from what I've read as to what that might look like time-wise is I need to start putting in about six hours a day. Maybe uh, that's another issue with my playing is I, at one point I was playing uh, just too much. I was before my kids started homeschooling, you know, I was trying to play in these sort of six hour blocks with no breaks and that turned into a mental game issue. And so now I'm trying to like stop playing if I run into that issue. So anyway, point being, I want to try to like break six hours into two hour blocks and, um, and have the goal of six hours a day to try to reach that goal. And how quickly are you going to move up based on results? Like, I don't when when was the last time you moved up in stakes? How long have you been playing two dollar spins? Uh, just a couple months. I I ripped through the dollar spins pretty quick. I'm gonna say I've only been playing two dollars for a couple months, probably since March. Right. And looking, what's your ROI in the spins? Uh, let's see. I could look at my poker tracker, but I think it's something like. $3.75 somewhere around there. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Like that, that's a huge win rate for a spin. The way yeah, I'm crushing the spins. I'm good at, I'm good at those. Yeah. So the way to make more money playing poker is to move up in sticks. It's the only way to exponentially increase how much you're making. Yes. So and adding tables. I'm trying to add a third table every now and again, but it's not going well. <laughs> I would not, I would definitely advise against adding too many tables, especially when you're playing early on. You want to think deeply about your decisions. Uh, as you, you know, after you've played millions of hands and you're comfortable and you know the spots, you don't have to think about them. They're second nature. Then you can start scaling with tables. But in yeah. the short term, if your win rate is say 20%, right? So your win rate is 20%. You, you buy in for $2. The output is $2.40. You're making 40 cents a sit and go. 
if that remains constant as you move up in stakes, which it will not at every stake. Oh, I know my chip EV has been all over the place the last couple of months too. Players will get better as you move up. I was going to ask about that because um, let's back up here. Every time I move up, my chip EV drops a little bit naturally due to... What do you, you mean know, by chip EV? I don't understand this term. Uh, that's the uh, that's like a, um, a metric that I'm using in Poker Tracker 4. So it's basically instead of tracking buy-ins, which doesn't mean a whole lot in spins, you know, um, with respect to the payout, you're just looking at in the individual games, you know, your chips, uh, the expected value in the game. Which is determined how? Um, so they have, you know, that like all in EV thing. Yes. They have, they have a chip EV thing that's, um, that you can compare those two lines to. And I think the comparison is actually the most helpful metric because it kind of shows whether you're running above expected EV or below expected EV with your chips inside the game. So, um, not sure. If is, is it a methodology that is accurate and it's guiding you correctly? Uh, I think so. I think, uh, I mean, my coach recommended it, first of all, but I also think that it sort of seems to mesh well with my subjective experience of downswings um, because, you know, the two lines. I mean, this is pretty, this is a pretty tough, tough deal navigating spins when they had this gambling element to them and some games are worth more than other games. And so like, exactly, and that's why chip EV is more valuable to track your own, I believe my own uh, abilities and skills is because I can look at the chip EV instead of look at, you know, the crazy line of my income, which might just mean that I just didn't win as many $10 spins and I want a whole lot of $4 ones. Can you not normalize the spins as all equaling the same and just look at like the result of each individual spin and your, your that's, average result. That's basically the chip EV because okay. um, yeah, if you, if you put it, you can put it in chips, big blinds, prizes or buy-ins. If I do the big blinds, it looks almost identical to the chip EV on the graphs. Okay. Because you need a way to track. Right. And so that's what I'm using. And the chip EV also uh, directly influences your expected hourly, right? Because as you move up the stakes, your chip EV is going to drop naturally. And um, so uh, that's another kind of issue is I feel like another, I also have to work hard at each stake and not just necessarily push super hard for the shots at the next stake, because I want to make sure that my chip EV is solid before I jump stakes because I don't want to like leap into it with a crappy chip EV and get destroyed. And why is that? To play devil's advocate, why is getting destroyed a chief concern? Because I'm not, because it would reflect that I'm not ready for the jump, that I needed to focus on my game and my understanding of the dynamics uh, before just trying to charge forward into what's essentially newish game. Although my coach says that they're all the same <laughs> up until I think $10 buy-in. But subjectively, I feel like they're different games whenever, when I jump in stakes. 
And that might be incorrect. Well, you just answered the question yourself. You said your coach says they're the same and then yeah. subjectively they feel different. Whose opinion do you trust more? Probably his. <laughs> right. So there's something emotional behind that that's stopping you. And to me, it's like, feels like you want to control all the things. Mm -hmm. you, want, you want a measure of control at every single step. Right. You want to know you're winning, which is yeah. an impossible thing to know anyway until you experience it for yourself. Yeah. Before you take the next step and like poker is uncertainty. Yes. Every day of poker is uncertainty. If you expect something different, stop playing poker, get out mm -hmm. of this game because nothing is certain. Yeah. And the only way to really find your limit is to make yourself uncomfortable. So within reason, without taking too much risk that, put your family in peril, I would certainly consider making yourself a little uncomfortable and coming up with a plan to prepare for a worst case scenario, which is busting your bankroll. Yeah. Because battling from four no limit seems crazy to me. And battling from $2 spins seems crazy when you could be pushing yourself harder and learning more and growing more as a player. You mean like just... I'm sorry, this is probably a stupid question, but like, you mean like putting more money into my bankroll instead of grinding it up to the higher level? Just of course, like, yeah. On bankroll alone yeah. and see what happens? I mean, when it's, I don't want to say a trivial amount of money, but like a few hundred bucks is not, it's not a ton of money. It's not that big of an investment, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, if you could invest more money into your bankroll and play a little bit bigger stakes and get a win rate that actually matters that you can feel, whether that's even you know five or ten dollars an hour, okay. um, the faster you get there, the better. Gotcha. Because what you're doing is just wasting a lot of time to get to a place that you could just get to through investing in yourself with money. Okay, I guess I was under the impression that everybody just ground up from like very small amount and that's kind of paying your dues. No, I've never played micro stakes ever in my, my entire poker career. I know lots of friends who have never played micro stakes. Um, you're mostly a live guy, right? So you can't no. find, <laughs> I was, so I played live in 2004, 2005. I started playing online and I played through black Friday for six years after I lost trust in the online system, I moved to live again from 2001 to about, or 2011 to about 2014. I met my wife, I stopped traveling, and then I have been playing online for the last six years. So the bulk of my career, 12 years or so, has been exclusively online. Mm -hmm. What things did you start at then online? So my risk tolerance was very high because I was. 20 years old and nobody right. depended on me or relied on me. But the first thing I did was I saved $3,000. I said, mm -hmm. if I'm going to give my, if I'm going to take a shot, I'm going to give myself the best opportunity to succeed. And that to me looked like having enough money to withstand some losses, even though $3,000 is really not that much money. Um, it's really not that big of a poker bankroll to start with. 
especially when I was moving 10 hours away from everything I knew to take a shot at this game that in 2004, nobody knew anybody who played poker for a living. Um, this was like a, if you look at it in hindsight, was a massive, massive risk with a super high chance of failure. There wasn't a moment where I felt like I was going to fail. I felt like I was going to, this is a mental competition. I'm going to outthink my opponents. I'm going to be better than them. That was the, the belief. Whether that's delusional or not is up to the individual person to decide. But I do think that belief is important, that I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall down. But the difference in me and somebody else is I'm going to learn at every step of the way. And I'm going to be hell-bent on making this work. So the first stakes that I played were 510 limit. They didn't really have no limit back then. Then it was 1020 limit. And then it was 510 no limit. So straight from 510 limit to 510 no limit live. And then I took some shots in poker tournaments, like a $1,000 bankroll on party poker. I hit one for 15K. And once I hit for 15K, I moved back home, started playing online. And, um, you know, it was like 1530 limit was the game that I played more than anything. Cause there was no, uh, no limit or very minimal, no limit at that time. So that was how I started. And, you know, 400, no limit seemed very, very small to me in the beginning. Like that seemed like very small stakes. I didn't realize that it was of course much bigger than I thought it was, but when you're playing 510, no limit it 400, no limit looks just a whole lot smaller. So yeah, I, I would say that like when I started playing no limit, I sort of jumped in at two, four, um, mm -hmm. quickly moved up to, to five ten, and have shot taken some at the ten twenty level, but mostly got comfortable at five ten, And that was sort of the pro progression for me, but like you got to take shots and the best time to take shots is when your bankroll is very small because it's replaceable. Mm -hmm. If you have a hundred thousand dollars, this is worthy of protecting by having a full poker bankroll. If your bankroll is $200 or $500, take some fucking shots because what's the worst that happens? You lose $500 and you replenish it. It's not the end of the world. It's replaceable. You know, I think that's sort of the mentality of that you have to have to yeah. succeed at this game. And lots of people will say things online. Lots of people will say things in books. They're full of it. They don't practice that themselves. They're afraid of telling someone to be more aggressive mm -hmm. because they're afraid if that person is aggressive, they will go broke and that they will take some of the blame and responsibility. So it's a way to mitigate the, that responsibility off of themselves by giving people extremely conservative bankroll advice. Great. I'll be sure to panhandle in front of your house if this doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Within reason, what I'm saying is within reason, figure out a plan that makes sense for you because it should be individual based on your life situation. If you say, okay, I can take a shot, I can play $10 spins, get some data and improve and just always improve. This is step one, right? Like 3% of poker players are able to make money from this game. However, very few people actually invest themselves fully into poker. So- mm -hmm. 70 or 80% of people just show up, hope thing, good things happen, and then go on, right? Very few people really take it seriously and really give themselves a shot. Mm -hmm. So like 
you want to say, like, if, if you can't make it, then at least give yourself a shot, an opportunity to make it. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's end this by coming up with a plan. Like, what are you going to do? What's, what actionable steps are you going to take to give yourself a shot to succeed at this game? Okay. Well, the action steps I'm going to take is uh, before I, well, I might be able to do more than 13 bucks a month, but I can immediately start saving the 13 bucks a month that I was originally saving for my entertainment budget. I think I might be able to scare up some money from savings. It was just my birthday after all. Uh, so that I can hopefully bump up my uh, run at once poker roll or my spin roll. I think I'm going to ask my spin guy if it's a good idea to uh, do fives or I could even, I've got enough maybe for another, for a shot at five right now. I'll have to turn on my balance and take a look ski. I might be able to take some shots. So I think, um, I think I'll be able to start investing at least a little bit um, so that I can, start playing more on run at once and uh, definitely take some more shots in spins. Cause I think I'm probably ready to take um, more of a $5 shot. I was dealing with some weird mental game issues at the time when I didn't do well. And it also could have just been variance. How would so. it feel to lose a thousand dollars in a session? Embarrassing. <laughs> what level of pain? pretty bad. I think I would be, I think I'd be pretty upset. I was pretty upset when I first started playing poker and my very first time playing live. And this was back when I knew nothing, right? I was playing Zynga poker. I was adding up like, I was like, okay, an ace is worth 10 points and a king is worth 10 points. That's 20. I should play these. And, uh, I lost $75 in live poker and I was just so upset so upset and I and uh, I don't think I would be that level at 75 bucks again but I think a thousand dollars would be pretty a pretty big deal for me that would be huge and this happens regularly in the life of a poker professional but but if I if I was properly bankrolled for it I would feel a whole lot better maybe we'll see when it happens yeah, exactly. <laughs> one one way to make sure that it never happens is to only play $2 spinning goes forever. Yeah. <laughs> like this is one way to protect yourself from that pain and embarrassment yeah. of losing a bunch of money. Yeah. So cool. You got a plan. Save your money. Relax your bankroll requirements from a bajillion D buy-ins. Uh, when it comes to cash games, 50 buy-ins has always been my rule. I've never been close to hitting that big of a downswing. That's actually, I feel like it's way too conservative for a bankroll. Um, so a hundred is like way, way, way beyond, beyond conservative. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, invest yourself fully and realize that like, you got to take risks. This is a risk. So embrace that. Embrace the unknown. You can't control everything. Put in the volume. Put in the hours. This is how you get better. And this is how you move up in stakes. Mm-hmm. Cool, Doc. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate showing up to Poker Power Hour every week and asking compelling questions. And uh, if you need anything from me, just let me know. I'm fully invested in your poker journey and your poker career to do whatever this- I can to aid you. 
This has been really, really valuable. I really appreciate this because I do have some like deep-seated financial issues that uh, mental, you know, that I think you really brought to light and how that is absolutely holding me back. So I, I, I can't call you wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. Take care. All right. Peace.